We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash hack it out. Just go to Indeed.com slash hack it out right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hack it out. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Hack It Out Golf Podcast with myself, Mark Crossfield, Lou Stagner, and Scott Fawcett. And we've got a very special guest with us today. We've got the one and only, the personality that I always feel, guys, I like, the only thing that I always think holds this guy back a little bit is he just doesn't have enough energy. Do you know what I mean? It's always a bit monotone, it's a bit level. We've got the one and only Michael Breed with us. Michael, thank you for joining us. How are you? I couldn't be any better. By the way, I want you to know that, that in my that when people ask me who I feel like I'm most similar to, I tell them I'm the UK version of, of Crossfield. So yeah. it kind of works out really well that way. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I take that as a compliment. Thank you very yeah, much. exactly. If I had half of your energy, I'm loving it. And Lou and Scott, just checking in. How are you both? You keeping all right? We're doing well. Happy New Year. Yeah, living, the, living the dream in 2021. Now, nothing's changed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Today's subject, then, we're going to talk distance. I want to hear what Michael's opinions are about the whole distance debate, if we want to call it that. I just want to get his thoughts on if he thinks the ball's going too far. Those kind of ideas should be a fun one. So, Michael, let's kick it off with just thoughts and effects of distance on the game of golf, in your opinion. Do you see it as a positive, a negative, of nothing? Like, what are your thoughts? I'd love to hear. Okay, well, so this is a, it's a wonderful topic. And, guys, I got to tell you how, how uh, honored I am to, to be with you. I'm big fans of all three of you. And, and uh, you, Mark, you've actually been to my studio, so you know what exactly this looks like. So it's great, it's great fun for me to, to be a part of this. I've admired the work that, that Lou and Scott have done uh, for years, and it really is uh, it's an honor to be here. This topic is, is one of those that I love talking about because um, there, you, know, you really get into golf IQ here. And where golf IQ uh, is, it, it helps to, to paint the picture. So um, I'm assuming that everybody that's watching this or listening to this has a really high golf IQ, and that, that allows us to go to places where most can't go. So having said that, here's my first thoughts. Speed is a separator in all sports. I don't care what sport you're playing, speed's a separator. Who can shoot a hockey puck the fastest? Who can throw a baseball the fastest? Who can swing a bat the fastest? Who can run the 40 the fastest? It's a separator. And 
The same thing is true in the game of golf. People that can swing the club the fastest are going to have an advantage. They have an advantage in, in how far they're going to carry their driver. They're going to have an advantage in how far they carry their six iron. They're going to have an advantage of what club they can hit out of the rough. And there is no doubt about that. And so what I think first and foremost to me is this is not about the golf ball. This is about the individual and the speed that the individual can create. And that speed is a separator. And I think it should be applauded, not argued over. I think the other thing is when we sit there and we look at um, the, the speed that the ball goes, it's solely dependent upon how fast the, the club moves and where the strike is. Is it in the, in the center of the face or is it on the toe or the heel? And that's a skill. And I think for all of us that understand golf, the real skill is can you swing it fast and can you swing it accurately? So that's the first thing. The second thing in this, and this is just to open this up because we'll delve into these topics. The second thing is this, the argument that people have over the golf ball going too straight, that's the one that really off, quite frankly. <laughs> and the reason why is because we've been sold a bill of goods that is false. And the bill of goods that we've been sold is the following. The ball goes too straight. The ball doesn't go too straight. Yeah, it goes straighter, but it doesn't go too straight. What's happened is, is that by removing trees and by doing the things that we're doing in the game, we're inviting people to hit it on straight lines. We're not asking people to curve the ball. I grew up playing shots where I had to curve the ball. And in large part, because I was swinging with heavier equipment, there's no doubt that the ball spun a little bit differently. But I had choices in balls that I wanted to play. I could play a pinnacle golf ball that didn't spin as much and could go as far as a Bellotta golf ball. And I chose the Bellotta golf ball. And I think the choice of the golf ball is an important part of this. But as we start removing trees, what we start doing is we start removing curve. And when you start removing curve, now you change the face of the game. And now you ask people to hit the ball straight. And when you do that, what we also have learned as a result of all this is rough is not a deterrent. And for the longest time, we've been sold this bill of goods that rough is a deterrent. It's only a deterrent if you have low clubhead speed. At low clubhead speed, now you can only hit a sand wedge or a pitching wedge or maybe even a nine iron. When you have high clubhead speed, you can do whatever you want. You go back to 2000 US Open, Pebble Beach, Tiger Woods, seventh hole, sixth hole. On the par five, Roger Maltby calling this shot that Tiger Woods hits when he wins by a ridiculous amount. And he says, point blank, in 2000, 21 years ago, he says, it's not a fair fight. And it's not a fair fight, not because of the golf ball. We all know that he was playing a golf ball that was spinnier than any other golf ball that was being played. It was not a fair fight because he could generate speed. And as a result, he could hit shots out of lies that nobody else could do. And that's what made it not a fair fight. And so ultimately, this is not about the golf ball, never has been. It's always been about the skill of the player. And what we're finding out now, and you and I both know this, Mark, is as teachers now, what we all know is without question, and I've watched you do your things on, online where you're showing people how you're working on generating clubhead speed, you're, you're increasing your clubhead speed. We've seen it with Scott do the same thing. He's working on clubhead speed. Bryson's working on everybody. Phil Mickelson, 
That's the separator. And now what we know as teachers is it actually is a skill. You're not magically born with it, got hit in the head with the magic wand that said, you're going to be a long hitter. Now it's a skill. And as a result of it being a skill, that is great for the game of golf. And it's great for teachers of the game of golf. Yeah, I would agree with those points to the fact that it it absolutely is a skill. And I'm pretty sure Scott and Lou agree with those points as well. I think just to pick up on one of the points you make there, which I think is a really interesting one with the courses removing trees, the knee-jerk reaction to distance in whatever time period where people were worrying about building longer courses and what have you, was actually to play into the hands of of the longer hitters by giving them longer courses. It just, it, it, all it did is encouraged it to be pushed on further and further and further. Scott, uh, what are your thoughts on that point? Just on the courses, I mean, I, I definitely see, you know, if you go and make the 18th of Augusta, I don't know how long it is at the moment, let's say you make it 520R par four, just for the discussion's sake, that's hurting me carrying it to 70 and it's helping the longer hitters. It's where you're actually trying to calm them down. You're encouraging them to a certain extent. What would your thoughts be on that point? Well, clearly the tiger proofing idea is, is nonsensical. I mean, it really is non sequitur and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The argument has nothing to stand on, but what Michael said there about trees, it's just hilarious to me because this is blossoming again. Like I'm an accidental golf instructor. I'm just a golfer who accidentally created something, accidentally caddied for a guy, and now apparently I teach. And so, really, the last couple of years, I've known as I watch the architects talk about, look at how magnificent Inverness is, just to make up a course that I've been to, where JT Higgins, the Texas A&M coach, when I went up and watched the U.S. Junior, he's like, Scott, you couldn't see another hole when we won the the NCAA's here in 2008. And at the U.S. Junior last year, they had removed like a thousand trees. The entire there wasn't a tree in play on the property. And as I'm sitting there watching this, I'm like, that's the only thing that slows down length is trees. That there's nothing else. Again, aside from just being intentionally unfair, making the fairway pinch in at 310 yards or a crossing hazard. Like that's just you know lazy design in my opinion. It's like we don't know how to stop it, so we're just going to literally make it impossible. Yeah. The trees is the only thing. And as I've just been watching courses, there's a course named Royal Oaks here in Dallas, which is one of the greatest golf courses I've ever played as a kid growing up. Justin Leonard, Harrison Frazier, tons of tour players out of there. And it's a short, tight, short 6,800 yards, super tight golf course that they removed a bunch of trees uh, in a renovation. And then the night before it opened, literally after being closed for a year, a, a storm came through and took out like 200 more. And so it's like they removed like two or 300 and then a storm came through and it's like the golf course, it's, it's just wide open now. There's absolutely nothing to it. It's still a great place, one of the best practice facilities in town, but yeah. the golf course just doesn't have much to offer anymore. And that's what I've been sitting here watching this tree thing forever. And it's, that is the one thing that you can use. It's, you know, Harbor town. Nobody would call that golf course, you know, yeah, it's tight. It's alleyway stuff. Yeah, you just you, you have I stand to... on the first tier at Arbor Town and just think these people really want their houses there. But I, I can hit them. You don't have to worry about that. And my, yeah. my mate Matt, who I play with, can hit the second line in. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll get to this a little bit in more detail. But I've bought, you know, just on eBay, the first Callaway Big Bertha driver, a persimmon that has velocized or something on the bottom of because apparently that was the tech back in the persimmon, <laughs> and then the old Mizuno XR Gold. And I've just been toying around with them and, and putting the impact stickers on them. And I, again, I'm a plus five. I'm a pretty good player. I can hit the dead center of any of them. It is, 
Yes, I'm sure I'm going to try to put a 47-inch shaft in the uh, Mizuno XR Gold. I'm sure that's going to be harder to hit at some point. But the Callaway, the original, what would you say, Lou? It's 190 cc's? Yeah, I believe the original Great Big Bertha is 190 cc. Yeah. This is a 190 cc head that I can carry 300 yards, and it's 44 and a half inches. It's 25 years old. Like, you're, the only thing you're going to do is make the game harder on the amateurs it's just not going to change the pro game much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Lou, for yourself, let's go back to courses. Like your idea with the courses and how they've changed. I know you've done quite a lot of looking at how golf courses have changed over the years and um, as intended ideas and also costs and those kind of things. What are your thoughts on Michael's points there about the trees coming down and encouraging maybe the older smack it up there because it's not in a tree and stopping? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point on the trees and how it, it, it encourages people to hit it longer and it encourages different lines and that, were, that were taken in the past. And earlier this year, I posted a picture of the, one of the holes at my club and there's a tee, uh, there's, there's a tree off the tee on the left-hand side where if you really want to hit a good shot, you have to work it around the tree. You have to hit a hook around the tree. And Michael Clayton, who we'd love to have on our pod to discuss always this welcome, whole thing, right? he's always welcome. He reached out to me and he said, you know, I, I don't like those trees like that where it forces you to hit a certain shot shape. And I just find that that thought process interesting where as more trees come down, guys are going to hit it longer because they're able to. They have lines now that allow you to hit at that length. And then for those that, that want to see more curve back in the game, I, it's interesting to me that they want all these trees to go away because as Michael points out, when the trees go away, you're not forcing me into a certain shot shape. And, and when, you're, when you're not forcing me to hit a certain shot shape, I think we've learned that intentionally shaping your shots um, to go against what your typical pattern is, pattern is, is, is not a, a recipe for lower scores. It's a recipe for higher scores. When you, when you put players in situations that force them to hit shots that aren't comfortable, that is going to bring skill to the top, in my opinion, or it's going to recognize and, and force them to hit shots that they typically don't hit. So I, I agree with Michael completely on the idea of trees and removing them and, and how that's bad for the game. And let me yeah, just absolutely. add to this, Mark, if I could, because one of the other things that happens is it, does, it doesn't just affect the first shot. It also affects the second shot and the third shot. And the way it does that is it brings trajectory down. So when you hit it into the, into the trees, you now can no longer hit it up into the air. And when you are playing shots that are low shots, what you do is you remove trajectory and spin. And when you remove trajectory and spin, you decrease the size of a green. So the green Tucking. complex gets bigger when I can increase spin or lift trajectory. And when I'm forced to bring the ball down, I now shrink a green. And when I shrink a green, and if you go back to this conversation of we want all these old line golf courses to be relevant, when you shrink greens, what typically happens is, is golf balls go through greens. And when golf balls go through greens, now what you do is you increase green speed because you're typically on a golf course designed in 1926 where you have push-up greens and drainage from back to front. You increase the speed of the green because you're chipping back downhill because that's how they drain the green. So those trees affect 
a, an, an enormous part of the game. The final part to this is this. It decreases your spend on the course because you no longer have to grow rough to 60 yards wide. You can grow rough up to the tree line and then whatever is in there is in there. It doesn't even matter. And this idea that what we're doing by taking trees out is we're making the golf, the, the, the golf course more playable, frankly, is I think I, I, it's fake news because to me what it is, <laughs> is it, it gives the architect biz, business. That's all it does. It gives the architect business. And the final part to this is, and I knew we were going to go in a lot of different directions because my brain, I can't turn it off. But here's the final <laughs> This part. podcast is never going to end for what it's worth. Yeah. yeah. What is going to 30 minutes. 30 minutes. <laughs> no, no, yeah. So here's, here's the final part of this. If you go back and study golf course, uh, 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 golf history, what you will, and you know this, Mark, and I'm sure you two guys, Lou and, and Scott, you know this as well. Most golf courses that were designed before, say, 1930, most of them were designed as match play golf courses, not stroke play golf courses. So if I go to Country Club of Fairfield, which is in Connecticut, designed in 1910, that's designed by Seth Rayner. That's designed as a match play golf course, not a stroke play golf course. And when we try to bring Marion and all these other golf courses back to what they originally were, we're designing them for a style of golf that was low trajectory, uh, high spin, um, match play events. And we don't play that. Yeah, and so yeah. it makes zero sense to me. It's like Botoxing somebody's face. I just don't get it. You know what? You get old. You get old. Leave the golf course. Let the golf course grow the way the golf course grows. That's a really interesting point of, of, about how the game used to be match play. I read an article a couple of days ago um, through an online archive, and I think it was maybe the American golfer. It was from 1896. And this article in 1896 was talking <laughs> about how the game came over across the pond. And, and the whole context of the article was about moving away from match play and moving towards stroke play and how fundamentally different that was and how the game was set up as a match play game. And they talked about the, the, the challenges of, of having you know, 200 players and trying to go through a match play bracket with 200 players. You, you just couldn't do it. It wasn't effective uh, because you would have you, – you, you, may, you may advance based on the luck of the draw. You may get uh, players that are easier to play against and they wanted to try to overcome that and they're moving towards stroke play but the you know the idea of the generation back then was stroke play was eh, you know it's kind of like you know it, it's not uh, fly fishing so if this you're game's fishing, too damn hard we don't want to count them yeah, all yeah, absolutely. So, well, that's, i've never thought about that it's really interesting about the match play well it would be Michael. really hard with the you know if you think that's about low saying. trajectories courses not maintained different equipment and you want me to count every shot this is meant to be in those days a gentleman's game like that isn't well, happening is it you know I mean? and it's interesting because and i was reading literally two nights ago in the American golfer, Walter Travis talking about his win at the British, at the British amateur. And what was fascinating was he said his first match started at noon and his second match was supposed to start at 228. Now just think about that. Yeah. The first match was going to start at 12 and the second match was going to begin at 228. That's one quick match play. Yeah. That's a nine hole event yeah. for all yeah, of us. Yeah. Ten and eight. Next, please. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> he, he got uh, what was the guy that Tiger ran over ten and eight? Yeah, he got Stephen Ames. Oh. <laughs> Stephen Ames. That's right. Yeah, yeah ten yeah. and eight. So it it makes the intended as intended discussion branch out into a bigger discussion, doesn't it? That one. It, it, that's some really good points there. So the other thing as well, which I always think is interesting, is the idea just to stay on the effects of distance. Because you said, um, you know, about that it's a skill. And it's, I mean, I would say it's entertaining watching humans do any task to a very skillful uh, effect, a skillful way. Like I, I watch Federer, I watch Nadal, because they are immensely skillful uh, at, their, at their profession. I always find it interesting when people say that they don't enjoy watching the players hit drive an X and drive in this. I just, I I'm, would argue I'm the complete opposite to that and almost your average golf watcher, they, they want excitement. Just imagine that par threes were free shots every time. Like, who's watching? I would swear, I'd go and make a cup of coffee when they were playing a par five, wouldn't you? A hundred percent. And you think about this and you go, what brings us to watching golfers at the elite level? And to me, it's aspirational television. And aspirational yeah. television is when somebody's doing something that you can't and you aspire to do what they, what they do whether it's hit it far or curve the ball or put backspin on it or whatever. And to me, that's one of the hard parts of the game of golf is everybody feels like they can putt. And so they look at putting as boring, but every, not everybody can hit a flop shot like Mickelson or a spinning shot like Seve Ballesteros or whatever it may be. And that's the part that you go, wow. I, I, I just think that what we have to learn to appreciate is when you start to, to, um, embrace the massive speeds that these players can create now, what you start to realize is this is something that, you, that the average person simply can't do. They can't get their body in shape. They, they're not willing to, to put in the time to get their body in shape and then to train and then to understand how to go about doing it with their equipment. I mean, there's so many facets to speed I saw a guy post on Twitter just a guy post on Twitter just yesterday saying the pro game has never been further from the amateur game ever. I'm like, what did you think? Nicholas was like a plus three. He was a plus seven or eight, just like. And I, I had I had so many comments typed up, and I'm like, that's going nowhere. Yeah, that's yeah, going right. nowhere. Yeah. Park, <laughs> that <is> a common <laughs> one. That's a common one, isn't it? Where they uh, say the gaps get like. So you didn't think Nicholas was good? Watson was pretty good. Faldo was not bad, was he? Like Sevy weren't bad, was he? Like I well, don't think. Wow, you must put yourself on some pedestal to think that you were watching Seve or Faldo or Watson or Nicholas and think, oh, I could be doing that if I wasn't laying this brick, these bricks down here at the minute. You know, I just think that, what are you on about? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty I, shocking. I, I think the actual, I think the biggest thing with that statement that stands out for me is that 30-year-olds would watch 30-year-olds perform at a high level. Faldo, Seves, Woosnam, like that era of golfers, they were doing that in their mid-30s. So I think your demographic of golfer, middle-aged, semi-wealthy male is unfortunately the demographic we deal with in this game. They're watching that, and even though it's not the ability, they're looking at that thinking, I'm like that man, I'm that age, I'm like that. Like Woosnam was strong, but he wasn't exactly a lean specimen was he so they're looking at him thinking i'm short and a little tubby i could do that when now you're looking at brooks kepka or justin thomas and the 30 and 40 year olds are going oh, i'm not that 
that arm, not that anymore. So I think that's almost what they're saying more than the actual ability thing is how I, I, I would read that. I also think this, and this is the part that's really fascinating to me, is if you, so, so this was true on Golf Channel. 50% of the people that watched Golf Channel didn't play golf. Now really? that comes to us, yeah, which is a hard wow. thing to, to imagine. I get and that, sit there, I get that. You sit there and you go, wait, that makes no sense to me. But if I asked you this question, what do you think the percentage of people that play football, that watch football on Sunday is, you would say, well, that's probably gotta be under 20%, right? Yeah, 100%. Because I'm not playing football. No. I'm not going out there putting on pads and getting tackled by, by somebody else. I'm not going out there and playing soccer at a high level. I mean, I'm not doing that stuff. And I know you yeah. sit there and you go, I can't believe that that, that, that many, but golf, 50% is actually a high number. And we look at it like it's a low number. It should be 80% of the people watching uh, golf channels should be playing golf. This is the part, this is the hurdle. And the hurdle is, is that it's okay if we watch Tom Brady throw a 75 yard pass. We go, well, we just sit there and go, I can't do that. Or you sit there and you watch Tariq Hill run a 4-2-40 as he's going and go, oh, yeah, well, I, I, you don't even think I can't do that, but you know you can't do that. But in golf, you sit there and you go, well, it's unfair that that guy can hit at 300 and I only hit at 240. No, actually, it's not unfair. That's why they're on TV and you're on your butt. <laughs> that's a brilliant point. If you think that through, that's such a good point Michael was making there. If you've got such a big percentage of – the viewing population who actually play golf, then you are going to get a skewed view because that's they're they're relating it to their, you know, their very different worlds. Because the amateur world, and I know amateurs don't, I don't mean this to be arrogant, but it's a very different world to the pro world. It, it's a Completely. very different courses. It's very different situations of standard, and they get driven everywhere in courtesy cars. It's it's a completely different world, but they relate it as the same. I think that's a really good point. Um, well, the, the only leg, in my opinion, that the, the rollback argument has to stand on is the pros hit it too far. Like that's, but that's such a small percentage of the population. And it's just, it's just, you don't change the entire game because these couple guys hit yeah, it too far. Yeah. Like it's just, it's nonsensical. I mean, how many golf courses across all tours are played by, by professional golfers a year? Maybe a, a hundred tops? Yeah. And, and look where I they mean, are this week. And we're filming this first week in Jan. Look where they are. They're at a, a venue that is a beautiful place to go. Wide open fairways, loads of slope, and they'll be smashing it miles. I tweeted earlier saying, you know, get ready for 400 yard drives and fueling the words St. Andrews and Augusta, roll back the ball being chucked on my timeline every time. But it's not, they're, do, they're going there because it's a beautiful place to go at the start of the year. There's obviously plenty of money in that event at that location. And they probably love going and playing that friendly course where they can blitz it anywhere and have a laugh. It's like, but let me just, I, do let me think, just... I do think people forget that the tour is no different to Cats the Musical. It's no different to Wicked the Musical. It's a traveling show. And I think people get lost in this moral debate compared to what actually what the tour is, which is a bunch of performers putting on a show each week. Let me, let me just add one other thing here, because this is the thing that I think is really important. And frankly, where I think that the greatest discrepancy is, look, if I'm playing golf with somebody that hits the ball 330 yards, I can move up tees where I can hit comparable irons into a green yeah. but the difference is is that the comparable iron the seven iron that bryson DeChambeau hits and the seven iron that i hit have a completely different reaction when i remember i talked before about 
how greens shrink or expand yeah. depending on trajectory change. and spin. And the landing angle, the descent angle completely changes. And so greens and how they receive a golf ball is more detrimental to the low club head speed player than the high club head speed player because they could attack, high club head speed players can attack every hole location where yeah. the low club head speed player, even if they're hitting the same iron, their golf ball with the seven iron is going to release 20 feet on the green and a, a, a Bryson DeChambeau release on a seven iron is a foot. If yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, this absolutely. is this is a conversation I have with my LPGA players quite often when they kind of get frustrated with trying to learn the tee shot decisions and everything. And I'm like, the, the, the real problem, especially for like the elite female player, is golf courses are designed for the average man. And so you can take the elite man and just move them 50 yards back and the dog legs, the bunkers, it's all still in places that make sense. For the elite female, you, you can have them playing longer than the average man or at the same distance, but then the dog legs and all the hazards if they're just in really strange places where if you had it would be like a, a guy having to hit like a, a a six iron to a corner to leave a five iron to the green you'd play as me like this is the dumbest hole ever and they get that yeah, yeah. several times around because the courses just don't make much sense yeah. i want to i just want to add one other point here because this is important and to the topic so back in 2009 i went and spoke to the golf course architects that includes pete dye uh, Mark McCumber, Nicholas, I mean, they were all there. And I, what I said to them was the following. I said, I stood up and I said, you guys aren't going to like what I'm going to say. But the reason why we have a problem in the game of golf is your fault. It's not our fault. And the reason why is this. One, the teeing ground was completely abstract. It started with you had to tee your golf ball within two club lengths of the hole itself. And then they moved that just across from the green. And then they took that and they went, well, there are people that hit the ball, so we'll move back a tee. And so we had a professional tee and an amateur tee. And that's evidenced at Augusta National, by the way, just so that everybody's clear on that. They only have two tees there. But the problem is, is that when they went into design, what they thought and what they did, their, their, their orchestration of design was, we're gonna put the tee box so that everybody hits their tee shot to the same general area. And when I went and played Pete, uh, Pete Dye's golf course at French Lick, years ago, there's a hole over there. I can't tell you what number it is, but th the, the area that you approach the green from, no matter what, is the same on this one hole because of a hazard that crosses. And so it's 185 yards. That's what you're hitting into the green. And so at that point, 185 for an LPGA player might be, or for a low club head speed player might be a hybrid, which is maybe it has a high, maybe it has a high apex, but it doesn't have a lot of spin. And for a high, high speed player, uh, you're hitting a seven or eight iron in there. It's got high apex and high spin. For me at 185, I'm going to hit a five iron or a six iron. That's not going to have, I'm about a 90 foot apex guy. And my spin rate on that's going to be somewhere between five and 6,000. That's not going to, the, the ball coming into the green is not going to be received well. And there's an inherent flaw in golf course architecture because they don't think about club head speed. They think about the distance that the drive is going to go. And if they redesigned their, their courses 
based on clubhead speed, now everybody would have comparable shots in a seven iron for the 100 clubhead speed player and a seven iron for the 120 clubhead speed player and a seven iron for the 70 mile an hour clubhead speed player. They'd all be in different places. That's how T should be established. And the architectural space has failed miserably in this regard. I'd, I'd like to interject right here, just in case it's not obvious at home, that is Michael Breed, B-R-E-E-D <laughs> speaking, not Scott, Scott Fawcett has this voice, that was all Michael but Breed, don't fill tell up me his you don't time want to get involved, Scott, not mine. <laughs> Please do not fill up Scott's timeline with Michael do. Breed's comments. <laughs> Michael so that Breed. Yeah, that leads me on to the next question, and I don't want to linger too much on this, because I think it's a separate pod in itself, but I just want to start it's a pretty much yes or no question in my opinion just for this podcast we'll do more on it so would you roll the ball back is question number one let's go through michael yes or no would you roll the ball back simple answer is no if you do roll the ball back the question would be what is your goal because right. one of the things that we still have right now if you roll the ball back you you go to a ball that's universal for every single player well, what we know is clear is not everybody strikes the ball the same way. Webb Simpson doesn't strike the ball the way Dustin Johnson strikes the ball or the way Justin Thomas strikes the ball. Justin Thomas is hitting up way more than DJ. And that ball is going to respond completely differently. The second thing to me is, is that if you go to a spinnier ball, let's just say that we go to a, a ball that spins at I'll make a thousand it revs more, a thousand revs more. That's what Bilal even if you went. To, so let's say you go to, to a thing. Remember when Greg Norman was playing and he put the tour edition golf ball into play and that ball was <laughs> spinning off of greens. You remember yeah. that? Yeah. So let's oh, go yeah. back to that. They were spinning off of greens on green speeds that were considered fast at about 11. Now the green yeah. speeds are 13, 14, 15. So if you roll that ball back, you better damn well make that, that green speed slower. And if you make the green speed slower, now a ball that's spinning with the massive clubhead speeds that these players have, you have to be able to keep the ball on the green. And what golfer wants to roll green speeds back? You cannot yeah. roll the ball back without rolling green speeds back. Yeah. Think about how uninteresting it would be to watch guys literally just chip nine irons from 120 around the golf course, hammering driver out there, and then just literally taking three-quarter swings at everything because it's just unmanageable. But you are, yep. presuming, you are presuming on this that they would use spin to roll it back. That's, I'm just going to put that. There's other ways of rolling it back. But uh, the spin argument, I 100% agree with. Also, the spin argument, play. I can beat a thousand revs of spin i've proven it in videos you put a thousand revs more on that ball i can take it off and still get the same distance i just have different deliveries like any good coach who understands deliveries we start teaching differently because we'll be there um so you're a no for rolling the ball back as a generalized answer michael i think and lou uh, i am a no and 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 i just wanted to expand on your comment there just on, on changing delivery if yeah. they change the ball through spin it was a, a day ago or two two days ago uh, I forget who posted it, but it was a little blip about Stuart Sink and how he changed his swing to change his delivery. And he went from two down on his angle of attack to two up, and he gained 20 yards just by changing his angle of attack and, and getting extra distance. Whatever they introduce, they'll beat it. Players are going to adjust and adapt. And, and, and things like TrackMan and GC Quad have played such an important role in helping players to optimize launch angles. You know, you, all of you guys uh, are, are way better players than I did. And you, and you played back in the Balada days with Persimmon. 
And you didn't have the same kind of technology that we had today. You were flying blind with respect to trying to optimize your launch conditions. And I think there was you know, knowledge that we don't have today, uh, knowledge well, that we have I think today. we had we it. We just weren't, ask, weren't asking the questions. The knowledge was there. We just, people weren't asking the right questions. And, and so back then, it, it wasn't the same as it is now. Whatever you give these players, you give them a, a weekend with it, and they are going to adjust and adapt and, and make some changes to it. So that, that's, um, that's a, a really good point that you made there, Mark. But I, I am a completely against rolling the ball back. Um, at all levels, um, especially at the amateur level. That would yeah. just be bananas, in my opinion, to roll it back for amateurs. Amateurs have benefited from improved equipment. The RNA has been conducting a distance study since 1996. The lowest swing speed players have gained the most distance. Um, and not only have they gained the most distance, their fairway accuracy hasn't dropped that much. It's only about 4 or 5%. So they're longer. They're not that much wilder they're hitting a, a fraction less fairways per round handicaps are dropping the mid 90s to today the men's handicap is down over two the women's is is over three close to four and all of this technology has made things easier for amateurs the game is hard enough and it's not like amateurs are running over the game just the other day i went through and and from 2020 i, I got state am results for men's state amateur championships and one of those scott played in maybe two of those from texas and i posted the average field score and then the the, the score for players that made the cut and they ranged from 80 to 73 for the entire field depending on the state am you looked at and then the, the ones that made the cut were a little bit lower than that but none of these amateurs even elite amateurs at the state level are running over golf courses and the last thing it's important to note on that is the courses they were playing were generally around 6,900 yards so they were not playing 7,500 yard tracks they were playing courses at that length and they're not running them over to roll it back for ams would be a bananas bananas idea Hey, I just want to add that, one Larry. other Some thing here, points. Mark. Let me just add one other thing because this yeah. is an important part of this. If you rolled it back, what you have to understand is the number of golf balls that are unfound that exist on golf courses all over yeah. the world. Yeah, that's a great point. And so you're telling me that Lou goes out to go play. He hits his ball into the woods. Yeah. I'm going to go find his ball. And I find a pearl that's two years old. I'm not going to play it? Yeah, going on 20 yeah, hours longer. Yes, please. How the what hell are you, you going to regulate that? I what have are you buddy, doing about that, yeah. Lou? <laughs> I have some buddies that haven't paid for golf balls in decades, like yeah. literally decades. They're in the woods all day. What are you doing this weekend? I'm going trolling for balls. <laughs> It'd be an advantage to lose your ball, wouldn't it? Hope to find another. Just a little point there as well, which relates to something else we said in the pod when people say about that the stat, like they don't relate to the modern game anymore like they used to. Think about what Lou's saying there in relationship to what I said about delivery. How hard is it for an amateur to change their delivery? Let's pretend the amateurs want to keep, you roll the ball back and the pros work out that they now want to hit nine up and present only 13 degree dynamic loft. So they've got ridiculously low spin lofts to get the most out of this high spinning ball, whatever it is. Your average amateur is not going to get anywhere near nine up. So now you've just increased the skill gap between the elite 
and the amateurs and people are using the rollback idea and I'm not for or against rollback just as you, you know, I'm kind of going to sit on the fence with it because I think there are some positives. which we can Switzerland, talk about in another... we're talking to Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but some, what my, my, my most frustrating points with rollback is that some of the arguments that so-called back it up actually contradict it so there's a there's one big part of me that often thinks just roll it back and watch them get it wrong because they're just going to regret they're just going to widen the gap between the good players and the bad players they're not going to be any better or worse because handicap and slope ratings will just even them out it'll make no difference if you if you do it correctly but it's a it's an interesting point there. I do think the the pros will just adapt. Scott, I'm going to hold the tricks and balls up. We got this little private. You can't see on the podcast. We have got this little private thing that if Scott starts talking too much, I hold the tricks and balls up to the camera. Um, Scott, yes or no? Roll the ball back. No. No, I knew Should you. Would I elaborate? Say that. No. No, I mean, no. But, we'll but do it same, on another. We'll, we'll do it on. A, I've got hold, one more hold question. On. I, I'll, I'll keep it to one minute. I promise. Oh, here we time it. The same. The same thing that what Michael was just talking about with find, with finding golf balls. The exact same thing that exists with okay, let's let's make the driver head smaller, which is another common one you see out there. First of all, again, as I've illustrated and I'll illustrate, the big berth is not going to do anything to me. But most importantly. Remember when they implemented the new grooves? I don't remember how long oh, people gained the old grooves. People were grandfathers in, but it was yeah, but it was you you could use them even for like five or six or eight years, I think, be from this to implementing the drivers. Nobody's gonna be forced to go out and buy a five or six hundred dollar driver and not be mad. All the used drivers essentially now have no volume or value. excuse me, no no value. And then the other thing is that they want to the, the GCA crowd wants to bring the old courses back. <clears throat> okay, fair enough. Well, how about every course that's been designed in the last 20 years, which are all of them in the nice neighborhoods around the world, which they're going to have something to say about this. Those footprints are huge because they were designed with the ball going 100%. further. Now, if you roll the ball backward, the trigonometry is by definition going to go straighter. Those golf courses become absolutely 100% wide open pastures that, I mean, are going to be a joke to play. So, well, we kind of are and, where and we Scott, are. We, we've kept... I was going to say, we've capped, you know, club head speed to, to smash factor at 1.5. As we were talking in the intro, the only way to hit the ball further now is to swing the club faster. And that should be rewarded. It's actually less than 1.5. Um, that's a trap man myth, but I know what you're saying with that. But here's um, the other yeah. thing. Too. You can't, you're when not going to launch about, it at 1.7. Yes, correct. I know what you're saying. When we talk about bringing golf courses back, the assumption is, is that the golf courses have gone away, but they yeah, haven't gone away. <laughs> I know. are still playing them and they're playing them a lot. The memberships at Marion, at Oakmont, at Wing, they're all full and there's a waiting list. So try getting a green like, fee at, wet, at Sunningdale. There's not Good a luck. problem. <laughs> yeah. right. hey, I want to I want to bring up one really interesting point about grooves. I was talking with a former tour player a few months ago. I'll, I'll leave the name out to protect the innocent. And this tour player played on the tour back in the 80s. And he said that it was a lot tougher to play out of the rough back then. And in a separate conversation that we had a couple weeks after that, he talked about how players back then never changed their wedges. They just wore down the grooves. And it was a badge of honor to have this little dime-sized yeah. wear spot on the yeah. grooves. Totally. And then after that, I said, well, I mean, do you think it would have been easier to play out of the rough if you if you'd changed your wedge more than once every 12 years, and he's like, well, uh, you know, maybe, I guess maybe it would have. And, and, and so I, I think it, uh, knowledge has evolved and I'll just, yeah. leave it that. just before we go on to the last question, um, which is a good point with the grooves there. Did you know that the RNA USDA, they didn't have the research into what equipment is doing until those grooves hit. Did you know that? 
it was pings grooves that made them sit back and go hang on Boxers. we might need to we might need yeah we might need to i did a video on it and i ping actually sent me a study that they had you know uh, some research based on those grooves and those grooves changed the way the authorities looked at golf and to be fair they actually worked out that those grooves made very little difference apart from in the rough but they kept the band going because they didn't want egg on their face that they were that they were bringing it up so it was a real contention between ping and the authorities it's a really interesting one so so basically ping with their innovations are the ones who made the the authorities start to sit up and put their bacon sandwiches down and put their blazers back on and go we better do something boys <laughs> right last question because scott's gone on for far too long again <laughs> um so quickly again i don't want this to go on too long this last bit so biggest factors what have been the biggest factors and i'm going to start with lou because he's already kind of hinted towards this biggest factors for distance lou you're going to say equipment i reckon and a bit of teaching what what's your what's your what's your thoughts well i, I think there's multiple factors that have gone into increasing distance the equipment is is clearly um, leading leading the race there. Uh, driver technology has changed, ball technology has changed, but so much else has contributed that, to that. Agronomy has changed. Uh, the, in the USGA Distance Insight Library, they did a study on bounce and roll, and they looked at how bounce and rolls in, impacted in a number of different uh, ways. Uh, type of grass, length of grass, the grain direction of the grass, the amount of moisture in the soil. And one of the takeaways from this is that for every tenth of an inch increase in fairway height, the ball is going to roll 2.2 yards less. And you look at fairway height today compared to what it was 30 or 40 years ago or longer, and it's anywhere from three tenths of an inch to six tenths of an inch difference. So if you could rewind to 1980 and, and put some of those new Toro mowers that they have in place today where I think it was in the 2000, 2005 open, they, they brought out some new Toro mowers at St. Andrews and they stimped out the, the fairways and there were runnings at some crazy number. They were faster than the greens. If yeah. you could go back and do that in 1980 on PGA Tour courses, overnight, the PGA Tour players would have probably gotten about seven or eight yards longer, and it would have closed that gap compared to what it is today. So agronomy plays a role. Fitness plays a role. Trackman plays a role. And the thing that I don't think gets talked about enough is the what we've learned from strokes gained. So Brody came out with strokes gained. He, he brought a different way to look at and understand uh, the game and players started to understand that distance is more important than maybe we thought it was in the past. And sometimes distance isn't just about being Bryson and swinging it, swinging it at 130 miles per hour and carrying it as far as you can. Sometimes distance is just about making a decision to hit it longer than you normally would. It's about hitting driver instead of hitting three wood or hitting driver instead of hitting a long iron off the tee, which was much more common back then when the game was played under the, 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 pre, the context of you had to put the ball in the fairway and you had to be accurate and you should lay back to, to do that so mindset change isn't it so i got an interesting question then from your points there lou i presume you're gonna say that equipment was the is, if you had to put percentages to each one i don't want you to do that one which one's got the biggest bar in your bar chart because i know you're not afraid of a bar chart which one are you is it equipment 
Well, I, I think it's it's equipment, uh, but yeah. you know, okay, what, what's, that's cool. What, no, but, but I, I, just, I wanna, just want the biggest bar chart. Yeah, equipment and. If tour players were playing a distance ball back in the 80s and 90s, they would have been a whole lot longer than they were. So, uh, you know, the, yeah. the ball, them being able to play a ball uh, that, that spins less off the driver but still maintains some spin on approach shots, not as much as it used to, I, I think it, it is, um, contributes significantly. But there's so many things that go into increasing distance. It's not yeah, just no, I, I I totally agree. I, I totally agree. It's not one thing, but you're gonna you're gonna say equipment. Uh, it was is maybe the biggest contribution. Yeah, I, I would Scott, I would hesitate to put a percentage on it, but I would say yeah. it's up there. Scott, just quickly, what would you give the biggest percentage to for the distance increase? Would you be putting it in distance or anything I, else? I, I just think what, the club head. I mean, I, again, I, like I'm not an idiot. I understand that the larger club head allows me to swing it faster, and so you know, that longer shaft at 47 inches, again, the, the big Bertha, I'm going to hit that thing right in the middle of the face at 47 inches. Yes, I'm going to head it slightly more towards the tone, whatever, but not enough to actually try to slow it down. You throw that yeah. Mizuno MST head that I'm talking about that's basically the size of a persimmon head, you throw that thing out there at 47, and yeah, I'm probably going to swing that slower or not go to 47 inches. I, I understand that, but there's no way we're going back to that. So it's a moot point. I think equipment allows you to do stuff. Michael, where would you go? Would you go equipment or somewhere else? Uh, I think it's the aspirational mindset. I, I yeah, think I like that, that if you take I like that. all parts of golf, um, everybody's gotten better. <clears throat> golf ball manufacturers want to make a better ball. They want to make a better driver. They want to make a better mower. They that, that aspirational mindset is the thing that has, has been the greatest contributor. And what I would also say is the the age of the game so let me give you an idea what i mean by that back when the game was played at a very high level we'll call it 1930 bobby jones bobby jones is playing a set of golf clubs if you've been to augusta national and you've, and you've seen this he played golf clubs that were pretty but they had zero technology whatsoever there was no idea of swing weights and the the effect effect of swing weights they had no idea of anything there was no limit in 1930 on the number of golf clubs that you put into your bag. And in fact, back to another point, when they talk about the properties, the way you, you got to understand maintenance, the way they got a five gang mower from the eighth fairway to the ninth fairway was moving a bunker away from a green in its design, because the only way that you could get that mower from one fairway to the next fairway was to have a wide enough space to drive through. And, mm -hmm. and so believe it or not, getting, getting your maintenance uh, machines around the golf course was involved in golf course architecture. Well, now, obviously, we know that's quite a bit different. But my point to you is this everybody's gotten better. So if you want to, if you think that there's an issue with distance in the game of golf, then you have to put the, the, the responsibility on all facets. And that means that you have to take away aspiration. And if you take away aspiration from anything, I don't care what it is, you take aspiration away, then whatever it is will fail. Because if you limit, like if you say to, to us, we can't make a better widget, then the widget business will go out of business. And what will happen and what will be created as a result of rolling the ball back is the game will die. It will literally die. And there's so much evidence 
to support that. B R E E D. MichaelBreed.com. Don't forget my website, MichaelBreed.com. I mean, I I wouldn't say as far as it would die, but I hear the point. I do think it it would have some very big. well, I think there would be some big questions around it. I mean, my point, I think, with asking about what's the biggest contributing factor, I always think it's interesting, A, that we don't know that answer. That's a problem. Because we can't have a proper real debate unless we know what is the biggest contributing factor. Because I also think, like, Michael, this one is not Lou and Scott as well, but as a fellow coach, I see students at the moment and with things I'm learning with my force plates, what I've learned over the years with my understanding of now aerodynamics, where I came out of all education, not understanding aerodynamics in any way. Um, I don't think like you take 10% off the ball. I don't think, I, I think I've got 40% still to give to coaches as I keep learning as the, to pupils, as I keep learning. Like, I, well, I don't think you, I don't think you can beat me as a coach. Like I literally think at the moment it's getting to a stage where, and I, so I actually think, and I'm biased cause I'm a coach, but the coaching gets played down and doesn't enter this discussion enough. It's always roll the ball back for, you know, environmental ideas of sustainability and so on and so forth. So it's about the architects and it's about the traditionalists. Well, I just think take 10% off me, uh, give me, give me two hours in my studio. I'll find 10% back. It, it might not be as easy and I might have to relearn some skills, but I can teach my new set of juniors those skills in no time. You take 20% off. Okay, that's cool. I can find 20% because now I'm going to make the athlete 20% fitter or I'm going to hit up four more degrees to find 7% of that 20%. Coaching isn't even scratching the surface because it was so late in coming because of the technologies that we didn't have back in those days. I think. It's a marriage. It's a marriage. The coaching is what the coaching is because of the launch monitors and the simulators. And it's also what it is because of the equipment. And it's, I mean, you don't think that if you roll the ball back that the equipment manufacturers are going to figure out how to take the MOI and ship that or take the center of gravity and move that or expand loft or hotspots or whatever. I mean, what you're dealing with is the game, the game was a pretty game and now it's a knowledge-based game. We yeah. don't think about like as a coach, we used to go, yeah, you want to hit the ball farther, you got to turn more. Yeah, yeah. You got to swing yeah. harder. And now yeah. we go, well, no, we actually know some things that that will help this. Let's lengthen the shaft a little bit and let's do some other things. Understand how to use the ground and jump off the ground. We used to think you had to keep your feet in the you same would spot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like um um, the tightless guy, what's his, you know, the young guy who jumps. Okay, I, I always forget players' names in podcasts. You know, he, um, Justin is... Thomas, Justin Thomas. He, <laughs> Justin um, Thomas. Just, just Justin Thomas. <laughs> like, his dad did an amazing job, didn't he? he did, I mean, to not teach him to stop jumping is like testament to how good his dad is as a coach. You know, how many people would you have sent that young boy to who didn't have a father as a coach who would have got his legs pinned or feet pinned down to the ground? And that's where I think when it comes to the biggest contributing factor for me, I don't think some of the biggest teeth have even started to show yet because I think coaching is still so young and there's only a selective amount of coaches that I would send 
a prodigy of mine to if I couldn't help them. And I'm sure not to be disrespectful <laughs> to coaches, but you kind of know where I'm going with that, Michael. The, the, um, the one thing I'll add I, in is we want to act like this is a solved science. We're still figuring this stuff out. And I hadn't really thought about it until I was watching something with Sasha just yesterday where he's talking oh, about yeah. spining the shaft. I paid $75 last year to have a, a shaft spined in my driver. And he's like, the don't butcher if I butcher the words, but the forces and torques, he's like, they're all over the place in the shaft. It's totally arbitrary. And I'm like, yeah, but how many people, I mean, how many people find a shaft? So it's not like this is all, we're still learning. This is like yeah, the beginning 100%. of the for, of the of the deal. I want to just briefly rewind to one thing. Uh, Michael, you brought up some really interesting points about aspirations, definitely giving me something to to think about in a different way. And, and when you started to talk about the age of the game, I thought you were going to talk about the age of players. And that's one thing that doesn't get brought up very often. And back in the late 90s through the early 2000s, the average age on the PGA Tour was about 36. It's down to about 31 now. And in the Distance Insight Library, they have a study that they did on how swing speed and ball speed and distance change as we age. And the model that they, that they have there based on you know, tour data since 1980 um, is – as you age, every year older you are, you lose just over a half a yard of distance. So as the, the age on tour has dropped, that's another one of the contributing factors. If the age on tour was still 36 years old, the distance would probably be about two and a half to three yards less than it is now, just based on that simple math. So that, that's another factor that contributes to this uh, relatively complex problem of, of all of the things that are contributing to distance gain. You make a great point, and, and this is years ago. I'm going to say more than five years ago, we did a study um, with Golf Channel of the average clubhead speed at the NCAA uh, men's tournament versus the clubhead speed at an average PGA Tour event. And at the NCAA, it was five miles an hour on average, five miles an hour faster than a PGA Tour event. So your wow. age thing, right on, right on. Point. And I can remember people Excellent. saying then, well, they'll learn when they get out on tour to find it. It's like, no, they're just faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, yeah. I remember saying in the late 90s, early 2000s, that Tiger would not break Jack's record because of himself, because of who he was going to bring into the game. And it's just, you know, he didn't break it for a few other reasons, but you just look at I mean, <laughs> DJ and those guys. That's, a, that's you know, a bold prediction, Cotton. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's just, <laughs> the, 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 it is. This, I mean, again, like this is what Andy with the fried egg always does, but it's the athlete because he's trying to mock us. It's like, it is the athlete. Yes, you're right. It is the athlete. At a minimum, it's the age of the player. It's also the mindset, too. I mean, look, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, you say it's the athlete. It's not just the physical composition of the athlete. It's the mental composition of the athlete. It's the finances that these players are playing. The amount of money that these players are playing for nowadays, every shot doesn't matter. I mean, every shot doesn't matter now. Every shot mattered for, for Lee Trevino in 1967 because he wasn't making the dollars. So by definition, it was a more conservative mindset. Nowadays, Every shot doesn't matter. If you play great, you hit it at a flag. If you play like crap, you hit it at a flag. You just hit it at a flag and it doesn't matter because all you have to do is be on for 20% of your tournaments. That's all you got to do. You guys yeah. know this well better than I do. Yeah, well, Victor, when we had Victor on a couple of weeks ago, he said he basically didn't say that, but he said that. 
because uh, Scott was asking him questions about being nervous and what have you. And he was just like, you know, he was basically saying, I'm good enough to earn enough money. If I keep going like I am, I'm good enough to win the tournaments I want to win. I don't need to win them all. I can chip them to 10 foot rather than trying to chip them to six foot because I just want to get 10 foot rather than duff it in the rough. You, he was just good enough. He wasn't, he wasn't panicking like you're saying there. That's good. really good discussion, guys. I think we've done well there. This is a little... This is a little-known fact. The follow-up to Mark Grody's book, Every Shot Counts, is that actually every shot doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Every shot doesn't matter. It's part two. Last thing, to, to Michael's point, it's amazing how they don't just play for more money today, right? It, it, it's not just larger prize money. The amount that they make, uh, put, it, put in context of median household income, I, I put something out about this. Back in the day, if you were 150th on the money list in 1980, you made about what the median household income was in the United States, about which is, you know, today it's about $60,000 a year, a little bit over that, to put it in perspective. So if you are the 150th best player in the world on the PGA Tour in 1980, you made about what the typical household made. Today, as the 150th best player on the PGA Tour, you're going to make about 10 times what the median household income is, which is about $600,000 a year. So it's changed significantly. And to Michael's point, I think of it like a like uh, poker tournament players, right? They, they don't need to cash every single time. And as a matter of fact, um, they're probably better off if they are, are trying to make a couple of big scores rather than try to make a whole bunch I of- I got two sales. words That's for a, you. Yeah. Jim Herman. I could say Jim Herman. Yeah. He that's misses gone over every my other head. cut. He wins once a year. That's uh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a brilliant couple of points there. Thanks. I love that stats. Fantastic. I think that really puts it into perspective. Knowing that you're earning 10 times than the average person in the States, I'm going to stand on every tee and blooming send it. Um, thank you, Michael, for your time. As always, a pleasure. If you could just raise the energy a little bit on the next podcast, I'll appreciate it. I'm working that. on it. <laughs> and Lou, thank you. As always, great point. Scott, thank you. You were quite controlled there. And uh, all, all uh, comments about rollback can be pointed towards Mr. Michael Green. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>